I always seek to understand what are these people really trying to use this application for? What are their challenges? What do they wish it could do better? And I think also helping people come to their own conclusion that we don't really need to do it this way. We can improve process. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Hello, and welcome to Status Go. I'm your host, Jeff Tun. The hyper-digital era we find ourselves in and the changes required to maintain a competitive edge is affecting all industries and all sectors, including the public sector. Today's guest has led IT teams at the federal, state, and local government levels. Alita Jeffers is the CIO for the city of Aurora, Colorado, just outside Denver. Welcome to the show, Alita. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. To, to kick things off, I would love to hear your thoughts on digital transformation. I usually start off with this question because this can be a subjective term. Uh, people have different meanings to that when they hear the word, and the answers intrigue me and often help frame the discussion. I know that it's a broad subject, but what does that mean to you? Well, digital transformation is a very broad topic, and I think when you look at the extremes of it, it could be going from a paper process all the way through to artificial intelligence and AI. So I think that digital transformation for me really focuses on how do we embrace tech as a way to do business or a way to improve the quality of life? You know, consumerism has a lot about this. You can see all the studies and all the examples of where we've done things on a manual level and now it's it's an app or it's a click of the button. So I think focusing on, again, redefining business either through some kind of application, the process, the ability to automate, and that takes you, you know, from kind of what we've done in the past, even looking at things like IoT and driving that all the way to different types of decision making and predictive analysis. That consumerism of IT, I think, is a is a fascinating subject because we get used to the technology in our daily lives. And when we mm-hmm. go to work, sometimes we have to use antiquated technology. Now, now you've had the opportunity to lead IT uh, at the local level of, of the CIO of Aurora, but you also were the CIO for the Indiana Department of Revenue, and you've also been uh, at the federal level. What are some of the differences you see when serving those various constituents? You know, it's kind of interesting because at the at the federal level, you have more money, but you really don't see the outcome. It's not really as close to you. Uh, you know, I was a contractor for the Department of Defense. So, again, you had these budgets and these initiatives and you worked on them um, and you were successful but you might not have really seen kind of the end state or how it affected the end user. When you work at the state, you don't have quite as much money and you're closer to your constituent. So, you know, with Department of Revenue, if you had a tax question or a tax issue or a collection situation, right, you could um, look at the technology and figure out this is how it impacts this business or this person or, you know, this, uh, the rules around these types of tax returns. But when you go to local government, you have less money usually. And so it just kind of goes down. 
but yeah, um, yeah. but you're so much closer to your constituent and so you know the people could show up in your office or you're having you're going to council meetings where there could be 200 people speaking out on a very specific topic because it's a direct impact to them so the challenge i think more so even with local government is because you you don't have as much funding and you're so much closer to your constituents that the competition for those funds is much different. Um, I could be, for example, if I want to have more money for a security project, I might have to compete with the fact that the city needs to do tree trimming or fix broken sidewalks <laughs> or, you know, yeah, something like yeah, that because yeah. it's, it's, it's all the same pot of money. So um, it's definitely more of a challenge there, I think. Do you ever have where you're, where you're actually running into your neighbors that, that are bringing uh, issues up with you when you're quote unquote not working? You know, when I speak at various events across um, across the metro area, I will have people come up to me and say, you know, I live in Aurora and here's what I'd like to see or thank you for sharing that information because I never hear anything. You know, it's yeah, kind of yeah. a wide range of feedback on that those types of things. Yeah, it's got to be different than when you're in the corporate sector. Uh, um you know, when you go home at night, you kind of go home at night, right? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, with with the job in such a, such a public view, so to speak, uh, you you can probably never really leave it behind. Uh, that's that's got to be a, a difficult transition to make sometimes. You know, I've learned to just pay attention to different things um, at the local. You know, with, with state too, and even federal, you're really affected by legislation, and so you follow budgeting and all that type of thing. But at the local level, if there's an event, so there's a police event or there's a fire event, um, because I support public safety. So that means I'm responsible for all the technology around dispatch, police and fire. Um, so when those kinds of events come up, I do, I really, I make sure that, that I follow that and I'll go to the news or, you know, I get some feeds from work about what's going on. So you do have to pay attention to know maybe what you're even coming into the next morning. That's got to be such an awesome responsibility. You're supporting the the fire and and safety and, and, and police. We used to joke years ago. I worked for a large uh, television manufacturer, consumer electronics manufacturer, and we used to joke that hey, no one's going to die if our application doesn't work, right? You you've you've got people's lives potentially in your hand that your technology <laughs> has to work. Mm -hmm. How how do you mm -hmm. maintain? Uh, uptime on those types of systems that when people need them, they have to be there. What types of things do you do to, to ensure that? Well, I think with, you know, public safety, it is, it's a, it's a fascinating business and there's so much tech that goes into that. I mean, I thought revenue had a lot of tech, but public <laughs> safety um, really has a lot of tech and the potential for even more when you get into some of the predictive, the predictive side of it. So you know, we really just focus on making sure that in addition to kind of the standards, right, we make sure that that those platforms and, and all the technology that supports all of those different um, departments, you know, is up to date. And we really make sure that it, we don't move it around much. Right. We yeah, don't touch yeah. it a lot if we don't need to. But I think, too, we really have a lot of mitigating controls in place. So if something does happen, we absolutely know here's how we're going to fail over or if it's um, a situation where maybe we don't even fail over to tech, you know, maybe we do fail over still to a paper process sometimes, for example, in the dispatch center, if we can't roll over to another facility. 
Um, there's a lot of different ways that that they manage that and a lot of different options around that because that's something that, you know, not only do we have to address in Aurora, but, you know, nationally, there's a lot of uh, dispatch centers that have to be able to address that. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm going to use air quotes on this, on this next part. You won't be able to see it on the uh, podcast, obviously, but cloud, you talked about options uh, for uh, applications and resiliency and cloud can be a strategy to transform businesses, but it, but it means different things, just like digital transformation has different meetings. Uh, but it can, it can really be a strategy to help you transform whether it's a business or a government organization, what are some of the challenges that you face in migrating workloads or processes to the cloud? You know, I think the biggest challenge in moving to the cloud is that um, there are so many legacy processes, not even legacy applications necessarily, although we have our fair share of those too, but legacy process. So you have this application that's been sitting on your infrastructure for 10 years, or even just the ones that have been around five years, but there's so much customization built into them. And they've been integrated at such a point where if you take one of those components and you move it to the cloud, you know, the whole ability to access the data is different. The customization options are different. um, And that's what my end users will struggle with. So the 200 reports that you might have been able to go freely build, you know, (laughs) for your old ERP system, I can't regenerate those out of a cloud-based or a SaaS-based system. So that means we have to really look at the process and what do we really need and do we really need all these customized reports or do you really just use five that you run every week? And, And so anytime you have to revisit process and realize that, you know, maybe you can streamline your business just like others have done, you know, that's the whole change management that you do in an organization, and that can be a struggle. Yeah, yeah, it really can. So, so with these those types of challenges, how have you been able to overcome those challenges in your current role for the city of Aurora? It's a lot of conversation. Um, I always, you know, seek to understand what are these people really trying to use uh, this application for? What are their challenges? What do they wish it could do better? And I think also helping people come to their own conclusion that we don't really need to do it this way. We can improve process. So we've we've done a lot at the city of Aurora since I've gotten here with process analysts, mostly from the outside to come in and help drive those conversations. So, um, you know, here's our process, the current state, here's how we'd really like it to be. How does that impact us across the organization? So people have been pretty okay with that. I mean, once you go through that exercise once, then I think people will, the second time you do it, it's a little easier. The third time you do it, it's a little easier. They kind of recognize that there needs to be some change and and they'll let go of things slowly but surely. But it it is a tough process. So it's a lot of navigation and making sure that I have good working relationships with everyone. And, and it starts to build trust, right? That mm-hmm. That's that's part of it. As you go through those iterations, as you described, you're building that trust that, hey, this really does work, or you can really live without those 400 reports or whatever it is. So trust becomes a huge factor too, I think. And even within the departments, you know, as a city, I really support 19 or 20 different lines of business, if you think about it that way. So I mentioned public safety, right? There's water, there's library, there's parks and rec, you know, there's a lot of different things. And when you start to revisit process, 
even amongst the departments, they might be like, hey, if you do it that way, maybe I could do it that way too. And it further condenses the number of business processes that we have and makes us more consistent. So, but that's building that culture of trust and being open to new things and asking questions. 19 or 20 lines of business. That is a lot of hats to wear. (laughs) Uh, I I thought when I was CIO and had uh, four business lines and six internal departments, that was a lot. I can't imagine keeping uh, 19 or 20 lines of businesses uh, happy and and going with their technology. That's going to be a challenge (laughs) in and of itself. You know, it's fascinating. You never know what kind of question you're going to get that day. So I bet. bet. (laughs) That's part of the appeal, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so you've worked in both the public sector as well as the private sector in, in your career. Can you compare and contrast the challenges? How, how are they similar and how are they different? Well, you know, I started my career in software development organizations and startups, you know, and um, so those were organizations that historically move pretty quickly. They make decisions. They can pivot when they need to. Um, and and they have, you know, the ability to move faster and, and uh, market themselves as they need to. With governments or with public sector, all of those processes still exist, but they're much slower. Um, they're usually much more, I don't know about intentional, but they're much more um, focused. So budgeting takes a longer amount of time. You usually have to get more permission, using yeah, air quotes, yeah. um, for various things, right? So so although you move, you can move quicker in um, private sector, you can move quickly in public sector. You just have to navigate the waters. And so you really need to understand, here's how I can leverage, you know, this particular person or this particular platform or this particular process in order to get done what I need to get done. I think one of the other really interesting things to me about public sector is how much more collaborative it is. So if you're in private sector and you build widget A, well, all the competitors who build widget A don't want to talk to each other, right? Because how they do it is the best and you don't want to share secrets and all of that. Well, in public sector, you know, if we all have to provide service A, we all talk about how to provide service A and how do you do it and how do you do it and, and how can I, you know, benefit from what someone else is doing. And that impacts the vendor community as well. I've told vendors, you know, if you do really well with one of us, then you you could have the potential to do really well with all of us. But if you do really poorly with one of us, your chances of getting into everybody else are pretty <laughs> diminished. So yeah. um, it's a really interesting, interesting um, dynamic that goes on. That, that sounds similar to uh, when I worked for, for Goodwill. There's mm-hmm. 185 different companies that are Goodwill that don't really compete. So we share, end up sharing a lot of information back and forth yep. about what works and what doesn't. That's, that's, that's good. Mm-hmm. And it's good just to be able to have those relationships too. So if I have a question, I can call the CIO for Colorado Springs or for Denver and say, Hey, how do you, how do you handle this? Or how does your business handle this? And, and we can just learn faster that way. I'm going to go back to your Indiana days for a minute. And we were, you and I were both part of the Indy CIO network. And in some ways um, that, that was very similar, right? Because Mm -hmm. we built these relationships with other CIOs from other organizations Mm -hmm. and sometimes even competing organizations. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we were able to help each other out. This sounds like that, uh, but on steroids almost, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a, Pretty amazing. And that network was was definitely advantageous. And, you know, we learned a lot from each other there. And, 
And we learn a lot from each other here. And it's not only at the CIO level, but the CISO level from a security perspective. That's another really strong group of public sector security experts that leverage each other's knowledge. I'd like to change directions here a little bit. Uh, you were recently on a panel for SIM, the Society of Information Managers, mm-hmm. uh, at a meeting in Denver there discussing women in IT. And, and I know diversity in IT is a passion of yours. What are some of the unique challenges that you have faced as a leader in what is traditionally a male-dominated industry? You know, Jeff, I would say that I've been pretty fortunate in my career. And although I've had some challenges, I think that my approach to everyone is pretty equal. And so therefore, I'd like to say that, you know, I've been treated as such. There's been some instances where I might not have been taken seriously or, um, you know, an idea that might have come from one of my male counterparts was accepted quicker than something I might have put on the table. But um, I think a lot of it is just, I said this earlier, right, is I just seek to really understand where is that person coming from, male or female, right? So if I'm trying to make a point or I'm trying to create an idea or pitch an idea, well, the person I'm pitching to, what are they really trying to get out of this idea? What's their objective? How can I make them succeed? And so by focusing on that more than anything else, I think that's really allowed me to have good working relationships, you know, with with anyone. That's great. It, it really is uh, listening to people, understanding where they're coming from, uh, and almost putting yourselves in in their shoes, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's part of building that relationship no matter where you are in the organization. I, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, and I think, too, that you just, your presence is very important. And so realizing that you need to be confident in what you bring to the table and what your presence is. And a lot of the time, I would say most of the time, the comments or conversations, right? They're not personal to you. I mean, I've I've even told my staff and trying to support other people, right? Unless someone's like calling you names, chances Uh are it's just a bad day for them or you don't know what they're having to deal with that day either. So realize it's, it's not personal about you. You're just trying to solve the problem. So again, try and figure out what that really looks like and how you can help that person succeed. And I like what you said there about confidence. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's, it's that confidence that uh, sets leaders apart mm-hmm. because they, they go into a situation, they may not have all the answers, but they know that they have a strong team around them and they can, they can figure it out, right? And it's that same way as we step up as leaders to have that confidence and, and that builds on our teams around us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when you and I spoke for the Path to CIO blog series that I did a couple of years ago, you, you really highlighted that, that confidence in your ability to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're right. I think if you you recruit people to be a part of your team and you instill that, that confidence and give them the authority, you know, to make decisions that are within their realm, then it helps everybody. Your team can succeed and you can help um, move everybody forward. So, you know, the name of the, of our podcast is status go playing on the challenging, the status quo. And I've known you for a long time and you seem very adept at challenging the status quo. What skills are important for our listeners to focus on if they are going to challenge the status quo? 
You know, first and foremost, it is listening. It's really building that relationship, you know, with your peers and with your teams. Um, I spend a lot of time evangelizing about change or IT or security or whatever it is that I'm trying to recreate a culture around. I make sure that people understand the why. Here's really the vision and here's how it can impact you negatively or positively. Um, but you have to ensure that they get it and that they have, um, I used to call it enough of Velcro, right? You have to provide people the Velcro so that when you give them the real conversation, it sticks. Ah, so, so how do I, how do I build that so that they, again, kind of goes back to trust. They trust what I'm saying and they understand, you know, what the impact is to them. So, and I also do a lot of fact presenting because, you know, facts are not personal. So here's the situation. Here's the risk. Here's how we could mitigate the risk or, or not. Um, but here's the consequences of both of those, both of those potential decisions. And I think people, you know, they start to come around and they understand that this is what it takes maybe to improve their situation or meet their goals. But it's, it's, you know, you're, you're doing that constantly in everything you do. So really being I think in challenging the status quo, really being consistent in your vision, in your message, and in your explanation, those things are really key. Yeah, that that is a that that image of Velcro is is going to be a key takeaway for me. <laughs> I like I like imagery and, and painting that picture, and and really you're right. Uh, listening to people, understanding where they're coming from, building those relationships, and as you say, that consistency of message. Mm -hmm gives them uh, the Velcro so that those ideas stick with them. I, I, I just love that. Alita, I got to say, we really miss you here in Indiana. Oh, Colorado <laughs> is very lucky to have you. Uh, I've enjoyed our discussion and could continue to talk for hours. Uh, however, we do need to wrap. So before we close, what is something that we didn't cover today that you think is important for our listeners to hear? You know, Jeff, I spend um, a fair amount of time mentoring others um, in various either stages of their career or, you know, if they have very specific things that they're really looking for feedback from. I always try and make the effort to do that and to invest in others. And I think as being either a leader or even just uh, an employee as part of a team or a group, is really being sure that you're confident in not only what your personal value is, but the value you bring to an organization. You know, if you can really figure that out and be able to speak intelligently about that, that comes across and it plays into everything that you do. It plays into your leadership. It plays into how you manage people, how you delegate information and how you build teams. And, you know, not too long ago, I was at lunch with uh, somebody and he said to me, he said, what's your leadership superpower? <laughs> and I thought that that was such a cool question yeah. because it really makes you think about what am I really good at and what do I really bring? Uh, where's the value that I really bring to the situation or the organization? And then make sure you know how to use it. So what is your superpower? <laughs> I think we've talked about my superpowers. <laughs> That's great. I, I do love that, the superpower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a fun question and it always catches people off guard, but it does really make you think about where's my value and, and how do I contribute? And I think once people figure that out, 
then it's just a much easier way to build around that and build teams, you know, because everybody has a different, uh, different assets. So make sure we all leverage those to the best of our ability. I always love talking to you because I always feel like I, I learn two or three or four different things that I can go out and apply tomorrow after a conversation with you. It's always fabulous. As I, as I look back through my notes, I took, I took three pages of notes as I was going through this. This is how, this is how good this was. Uh, oh, I loved you. what you said about uh, change management and having conversations that build trust navigating the waters. Uh, you're a, you're a snow skier. I'm a canoe guy. Mm -hmm. I love navigating waters instead of snow. So I loved, <laughs> I love that, uh, that piece. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the Velcro imagery, uh, of the repetition of your message, mm -hmm. the consistency of your message, uh, as you're guiding your teams, as you're talking to your constituents, whether they're your neighbors or whether they're your end users at your company. Uh, and then, uh, finally the, the mentoring and having confidence in your personal value and confidence in the value that you bring to your organization. I, I think all of our listeners can take those points and think about how to apply those in their day. If you are listening and you want to ask a question or learn more, go to intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information. This is Jeff Tun for Alita Jeffress. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.